Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke chapter 22, and we're reading from verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. This is God's word. And thanks for reading. Uh, hello, good evening. Uh, my name's uh, Matt, uh, Matt Fuller. I'm uh, one of the uh, ministers, vicars, pastors, uh, one of those uh, here at uh, Christchurch Mayfair. And if you're joining us tonight, it's slightly unusual. So um, last week and this week, two slightly different weeks. Uh, what we like to do normally is, is work our way through a book of the Bible. We'll take a bit and uh, work from the Bible, explain what it means and apply it to life uh, today. We're slightly turning that on its head. And so last week and this week then, we're starting with a question tonight, can I trust Jesus? Uh, and we'll think about that and work our way back to the Bible. So we're turning things on our heads just for two weeks. I'm sure you can cope. Um, I hope you can. Let me do this in prayer and then we'll begin. Our great God and Father, you don't want us to be in doubt about the Lord Jesus Christ. You want us to be certain, certain of his reality, certain of his goodness, certain that we need him. So in the brief time we have this evening, would you uh, move us perhaps to become more certain, to take him seriously uh, for many of us, to deepen our confidence and certainty that what we believe in Christ is true. Wonderfully so. Help us be at work amongst us, we pray this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're thinking about who, who we can trust. Can we trust Jesus? Now, any sociologist would tell you in the 21st century, we have trust issues. Uh, as a culture, Western culture that is, we have trust issues. So every year, uh, Ipsos Mori publishes the Veracity Index which is uh, they take, uh, I think it's 30 professions, mainstream professions, and rank them according to how trusted uh, the professionals are, one to 30. Now, year on year, it comes out uh, uh, shortly, actually, this year's version. Uh, year on year, the, the level of trust in every profession, doesn't matter if it's a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, uh, every profession, it drops just a little bit. Trust goes down uh, every year. But there is uh, quite a lot of difference. So would you like to know what the least trusted profession in the UK is? <laughs> Politicians and bankers are getting a shout out from the front row. Um, uh, actually, you're quite right. The least trusted occupation in the UK are the politicians. Only 21% of the public would trust a politician. Ouch. Uh, not far behind them are estate agents. Uh, 
Now, why do they get a laugh? They always get a laugh. I'm really sorry if that's your profession here this evening. Don't feel picked on until the end. The, um, so, uh, worst of politicians, next best, uh, or next worst, uh, estate agents. Third on 25%, only 25% trust journalists. Uh, that is the one that has dropped most in the last few years. Phone hacking, BBC not looking after, not looking after, not sorting out Jimmy Savile, etc., etc. Uh, and hypocrisy is the one they point at the, uh, the media. They slag everyone else off, but can't get their own house in order. That's not my comment. That's the sociologists, okay? Um, uh, for myself, can I smile uh, as a vicar? Well, not too bad. 67% of people would trust a clergyman or a woman. Um, so I'm tied with policemen. Not bad. That was quite happy with that. Uh, to be tied with police. Uh, slightly less popular or slightly less trustworthy than hairdressers. Yeah, but we've all had... No, I don't really go there. The um, uh, most trusted, would you like to know most trusted? Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to leave you hanging, actually, but uh, there we go. Uh, most trusted profession in the UK, coming in at number three, are judges. They're out of touch, but at least they tell the truth, I think is the uh, thing. Uh, number two, school teachers. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, so sorry, uh, judges 80%, 86% of people would uh, trust a school teacher. Number one, 89%, doctors. <laughs> we salute you, yes. Uh, uh, very good. Uh, if, if, you know, if you want to know the full list, you can come and ask me afterwards. Uh, bankers are number four. Fourth least trusted, actually. Sorry about that for you. Now, what do you do with that? I mean, but every year, I guess the headline is every year, trust goes down. Now, in one sense, we don't really care. Oh, when, we're, when we're lied to personally, oh, we don't like that. Uh, and I think nothing makes us as cynical as when we ourselves are defrauded in some way. Uh, it was a little while ago now, I filled in my tax return online. Uh, I was quite pleased with myself for doing it online. I thought I'd really uh, advanced. Uh, and I filled it in, sent it off, you know, had to pay my £400, uh, and then had to pay a bit more money as well. Uh, that's a bit confusing. Oh, uh, it was an HMRC. It was a bogus website. And of course, then you feel very angry, angry with yourself. I'm not the sort of stupid person who does that on the internet, apart from obviously I am. Uh, but of course, I agree with them. And you start to become cynical about everything if you're not careful. But you do have to trust someone, and you have to trust some people. Just in the mundane things, uh, if we get paid a salary, it goes into our bank. We do trust that it's going to be there. And uh, the cashier is not going to squirrel it away and uh, tuck it into our handbag. Um, we trust our banks not to nick our money, apart from small print and overdrafts. We won't go there. But we trust them broadly. Friends. All of us have to have friends that we trust. Or if they let us down, that is painful. So there's some things we just have to trust people with. And it's that you, you have to trust someone with what you're doing with your life. You can live it in your own, but what makes a successful life? You have to trust someone's view on that. What happens when you die? You have to trust someone's opinion on that. You might trust someone who says nothing. You rot. Well, you're trusting an opinion. It's a pretty insignificant one, what happens when you die. You want to get that right. And unsurprisingly, I stand here and say, you want to trust Jesus for your life.
for your death. You really want to trust him. Now, how do we go about making decisions about how to trust people? Well, we normally take a little bit of time about it, uh, even if it's you know, mundane things. Oh, this looks good. I'd like to go there on holiday. Oh, that looks lovely. But I won't trust the photos. I will trust TripAdvisor. And on you go and uh, have a look over there. How do you make decisions? Or if um, in an employment scenario, you go for an interview or you're interviewing someone, generally you want to know a little bit about someone's history. What have they done? What have they achieved? Uh, where were they? Why are there two years missing on your CV, Mr. Brown? What were you doing then, uh, Miss Curtis? Um, you know, you want to look at their history, what they've done. Most interviews will want to check out a bit of knowledge. Do you know something about your subject? Can you actually do functionally the job they're interviewing you for? Of course, some will want to know your character. Well, look, this CV is glowing. Let me just ring up your reference. Ooh. You could employ them. They're brilliant. But it is like putting a bomb in your team. And uh, that's a little less uh, encouraging. But you want to know probably those sort of things. Uh, and so I want to look briefly at those sort of things for Jesus. I want to say you can trust his history. He's a man who really walked this planet. You can trust his knowledge about how we should live. Uh, supremely, you can trust his character. And therefore, what he's done. Okay, quite simple, just those three. You can trust Jesus' history, his knowledge, his character. Let's take the return. Do please turn to, uh, to Luke chapter 1. It's on page 1025. Uh, we had it read earlier. And Luke, then, one of the four accounts of the life of Jesus, the four biographies Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, written within a few years of Jesus' death. Let me just read some of it again. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Here's why he's writing. Verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now, stunningly, 40% of the UK population don't realise that Jesus was a real historical figure. But there's absolutely no contention on that. So 40% of the UK population would put him in a bucket with Robin Hood and Merlin and wizards, uh, and that sort of thing. But you will not find a historian on the planet who would deny the existence of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so Luke says, look, what I've written my book so you can be certain about these things. Certain about the events of Jesus' life. So three little questions. Just, uh, what's he written? When's he writing? And, and why has he done so? Well, what has he written? Luke says he's written an account He's drawn up an account. Many have done that. And so verse 3, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. He is claiming it's history. So this doesn't begin, as plenty of myths will begin, uh, centuries ago, while the world was forming in the dream time. Plenty of myths will begin like that. They're not claiming to be realistic. It's just a story. Or he doesn't begin... A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Which is a story. And setting itself up as one. He is saying, I'm going to tell you about events. 
when you read on, that took place between 30 and about 33 AD in Israel, centered on Jerusalem. And if you read through uh, Luke's writings, he'll tell you about 54 cities, 32 regions, nine different islands. But of course, they're all real places. And all the characters, the people he names, they're all real people. You can document them, check them. What's he writing? He's writing history. That's what he's claiming to have done. When does he do it? Well, it's pretty obvious. Uh, He's told us, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things fulfilled among us. Among us. Everything I'm going to tell you about Jesus has happened right now among us. That's why he interviewed eyewitnesses, he tells us. Eyewitnesses. Because these things, and he wrote, at the same time. You can't make stuff up, which is pretty big, and not have it rebuked or disagreed with if it's an obvious whopper. Even if you're the President of the United States, you can stand up and say, oh, look at my inauguration. I have more people there than anyone else. And others will say, well, let's just have a little look at the photographs. Um, Someone will stand up immediately and say, oh, let me put a counter view to that. We might call it truth. Uh, Or you might call it, you know, whatever. Um, And on you go. You can't just make stuff up. Luke couldn't make stuff up at 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 the first century because he's writing at the time of all the people who were there around Jesus. Or to put it in slightly different terms, what would we know about Jesus Christ if there was no Bible? It just, we just didn't have it. What would you know about Jesus Christ? You may not be able to read it, but I wrote a few things down. Have we got that? Here's what you'd know without the Bible. You'd know there was a man named Jesus. You'd know the place and time frame of his public ministry, Palestine, when Pontius Pilate was governor. So you'd know it was between those years, 26 and 36 AD. You'd know the name of his mother, that that was Mary. You'd know the name of one of his brothers, that was James. You'd know there was something odd about his birth. People kept saying it was a bit ambiguous who his dad was. You'd know that from outside the Bible. You'd know of his fame as a teacher and miracle worker. You'd know that people called him Christ or Messiah, promised one. You'd know the time and manner of his death, crucifixion, uh, at the time of Passover, the Jewish Passover. You'd know that Roman and Jewish leadership were involved in his death, and you'd know the names of them. Uh, You'd know that, extraordinarily, when he died, there was this eclipse across the land. Everything went black when he died, from the non-Christian sources. You'd you'd know the report of Jesus' appearances to his followers after his death. You'd know that there was a flourishing movement that claimed he was God when he was gone from outside the Bible, okay? Because this is a man of history. I mean, I get that some will want to throw dust in the air and say, well, it's not very clear, and that's why 40% of people do get a bit confused, I guess. But no one's sensible. So I could stand here this evening and say, do you know what I've done? Uh, Since uh, the summer, I've been reading biology books, biology textbooks, and uh, one or two medical things, because I'm thinking of changing profession. And uh, so I've been doing a bit of reading, and I've discovered that the human brain is actually a cauliflower. It's just a slightly uh, genetically enhanced cauliflower. And that's all it is. So, you know, you can make cauliflower cheese out of your brain. That's what it is. Oh, really, someone might say. Do you have any medical training or even a GCSE in biology? No. Do you have anyone who is a doctor who agrees with you? 
No. But I have started a website, and about 100 people agree with me on your website. You're very good. Anyone can do that. You can get anyone to agree with anything. Uh, and that is the level of disagreement with the existence of Jesus. So some will say, oh, there wasn't a man named Jesus. Do you have anyone credible who's even got a, any qualification in history that agrees with you? No. No. Oh. So yeah, some will try and throw dust in the air. But this is a man of history. He walked the earth. And it matters. Because Christianity is Christ. Without him, there's nothing. It's all about him and his life and his death and his resurrection and his reigning and he'll return. It's all about him. Now, presumably that isn't true for other sort of worldviews or, or belief systems. Presumably if there was never a man called Buddha... Um, someone else could have come up with the idea that if you meditate for long enough, you reach nirvana, you reach a state of enlightenment, you can follow some pathway. Presumably someone else could have come up with that. Maybe it was, would have been Sheila, and it would have been Sheilaism rather than Buddhism. It could have worked that way, I guess. didn't have to be a man called Buddha. And presumably if there was no Muhammad, uh, it wouldn't be the most popular name in the UK. And um, presumably if there had been no Muhammad, Allah, on the assumption that he existed could have given his vision of the Quran to anyone. Didn't have to be Muhammad. Could have been his brother. Could have been anyone. But if there's no Jesus, you've got nothing of Christianity. So you have to know that he's a man of history. Because it is really all about him. His life, death, resurrection, his return. And you can trust him. Okay? No one sensible would deny that there's a man called Jesus claiming to be God, walking around in the first century. You can trust him. So trust Jesus' history, that's the first thing. Second, you can trust his knowledge. Now I think most people, anyone who actually takes a look at the, the existence or the evidence for the existence of Jesus, you pretty quickly come to the conclusion he's a figure of history. But I think more common is the sort of uh, uh, objection or observation people make. Okay, I, I see that Jesus walked around this, this planet in the first century. But there are some things which he says which I just can't believe. There are some things he values that are so different from the 21st century. He is completely outdated. He, he is a man from a millennia ago. And so I just can't take seriously something which is that old uh, and that out of date. We've moved on in the last 2,000 years and we don't want to go back. Now You just need to think about that for a moment to recognize there's one or two problems there. So all of us are aware of different shifting clothing fashions. Fashions change. So the things we wore five years ago, we often don't wear now. Uh, we just look at them and think, oh, golly, no, that was just a period. Don't throw them away, because you know in 10 years' time you'll be able to wear them again, because uh, that's just what fashion does. It just goes around and around. So whatever jeans are fashionable now, if it's skinny, keep hold of them, because you know, when flares come back, you'll you know, just be a few more years before skinny comes around again, and then flared and skinny and bell-bottomed, and it just all goes round, because that's how they make their money, you fools. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, so fashion, it goes round, and it round and round, in, to a sense. But so do morals. Moral fashions go round. And so there are things which a generation ago looked ridiculous, but now are fine. 
Take a really sort of long-term example. Uh, a friend of mine commented recently that they'd finally read all the way through War and Peace. Tolstoy's classic, you know, they'd started a few times but got all the way through, as I'm sure many here uh, have read the classic in the original Russian, etc. You're a bright lot. Um, but uh, he commented, okay, it's 200 years ago. He said, but it was striking the sort of topsy-turvy value system. So in the world of, in the world of War and Peace, Napoleonic era, you and I could go outside and have a duel. We could take our swords, our muskets, and um, if you offended me, uh, I could go and kill you in the street, because I'm pretty good with a sword. Uh, I could, we'd have a duel outside, and the police wouldn't get involved. And everyone was, you know, people would stare and go, well, there we go, that was all, all very noble and well done. You don't want to try that in the 21st century, particularly on the streets of London, particularly if you get your muskets out. Uh, that'll cause a little frisson of excitement with the Met. That's different now. Or um, he commented, servants. Back then, if you had servants, you would hit them. If someone annoyed you, you'd hit them. That's just what you did. The employment law has moved on. Uh, again, I recommend you not to try that in the 21st century. He said, all those things, they're good. He said, other things, though, are very different. Back then, if you were a public figure and lied publicly, and it was known out. That is social death. You cannot recover from that 200 years ago. Now a little bit different, I'd suggest. You can stand up and say very publicly, oh well, if we leave the EU, we'll get £350 million back every week. And you say, is that true? <laughs> and, uh, but is it true? <laughs> and you just carry on. Doesn't matter that everyone says that was never true, was it? <laughs> and um, <laughs> so you can publicly lie, and it's fine. If you've got enough credit in the bank, or, you know, it's fine. You get away with it. No way you'd do that in 200 years ago. Or, or other examples, just in different ethics. Um, 200 years ago, my friend commented, to commit adultery in that period, fine. Everyone does it. Why wouldn't you? I think it's still the case. There's a moral consensus that to commit adultery is not fine in the, in the 21st century. We're big for self-fulfillment, but that is betrayal. And so still, I think, generally, we think adultery bad. Back then, adultery, yeah, good, good. Oh, back then, sex outside of marriage, <gasps> sorry, before marriage, <gasps> You know, again, you know, you're, you're, you're a social pariah. Now, that's the norm. Now, which is a better scenario? Yeah, I don't know, it's hard to say one's better than the other. They're different, but they're just the polar opposite. And fashions change in morals. It goes round and around. Often that's the case. So, look, my point is this. Don't reject Jesus because he clashes with something you hold to now, morally, when in 30 years you may not even hold it. In fact, you'll be embarrassed that you had that opinion now. Let me give you a couple of examples. One you'll like, one you'll not. Let me start with the one you might like. Um, slavery. Now, I don't think it's a huge controversy to say, from the 18th century, and certainly the mid-18th century onwards, those who opposed the slave trade were Christians, operating out of a Christian framework. 
That is not really a contested point. Don't just take my word for it. Let me give you one example. One historian, he's not a Christian. He, he deliberately de- establishes himself uh, early on in his writings that he, he's uh, agnostic. But here is uh, Rodney Stark. He's written a book about uh, slavery. Put in these terms. A virtual who's who of Enlightenment figures fully accepted slavery. It was not philosophers or secular intellectuals who assembled the moral indictment of slavery, but the very people they held in such contempt, men and women having intense Christian faith, who opposed slavery because it was sin. The larger point, he goes on to say, is that the pro-slavery rhetoric was overwhelmingly secular. References were made to liberty and states' rights, not to sin or salvation. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that the mid-18th into 19th century, the culture, particularly in the US, he's writing about, the, the culture says, uh, I can do what I want, and I want to have a slave, and don't you trample on my rights. Don't you trample on my rights to have a slave. And we in our state, we want to determine what we're going to do in this state of, whatever, Alabama, Tennessee. We want to determine what we want to do, and we don't want the center over there telling us what to do. We don't like that. And he's saying everyone in the culture had the same worldview and the only people who challenged it were the Christians because they had the Bible outside of the culture and would look on and go, well, do you know what? The Bible says that your attitude is sinful because all men and women are equal. But the only people who did that were those operating outside of the culture because they had Jesus' words in the Bible. And so most of us today say, well, that was good. Thank goodness there were some people who challenged the culture. It's very embarrassing, awful that we had slavery. Most would agree on that. That's a good example of when Jesus and the cultural values clash, and we're glad that they do and they challenge. Let me give you one you won't like so much. So in terms of sexual ethics... The Bible has a highly exalted view of sex as only to be done within marriage, permanent marriage. That is for the place of sex, nowhere else. Now in that, of course, the Bible is very different from the 21st century. In the 21st century, the individual is king. And so here are the moral rules, so it seems to me, of the 21st century. Here they are. Let me give you three. Thou shalt be true to yourself. That's number one. Thou shalt be true to yourself. Number two, thou shalt not criticize anyone else for their lifestyle. Don't do that. Number three, before you have any sex, thou shalt have consent. I think those are the three moral views that, that, that people hold to. Uh, In this arena, thou shalt be true to yourself. Thou shalt not criticize anyone else's lifestyle. And before any sex, thou shalt have consent. Brackets. uh, um, Reduce consent. Because if you're married, you don't ask consent of your wife or your children. No one does that. But consent, it's ridiculous. So I am saying those are three modern commandments, as it were. I would disagree with them, of course. So how does it play out? So the married person says, I'm bored with my marriage. And this man, this woman, doesn't fulfill me anymore. So I must be true to myself and get out. And don't you criticize me 
when I, reject, when I abandon my marriage and go after someone else. You're not allowed to do that. That's what I call the, the, the values of the 21st century. Jesus says, now marriage is permanent. And every marriage goes through its bumps in the road. Some of the potholes are pretty severe, but you stick at it and you work through it and you come through the other side and it's richer for going through the hard times. Now that's, that's a clash between the current values of the 21st century but that's because the Bible addresses them from the outside and says, look, I know you think that's the best way of living, but it's not. And again, for you and me, the morals will shift. So today, I'd suggest, in, in, in the West, the, the moral consensus is that incest is not good. Sex within a family, uh, brothers and sisters, that's not good. But given our culture, that must change. The moral values of our culture, thou shalt be true to yourself. Look, I want to have, I'm not talking about personally, but uh, hypothetically, uh, I want to have sex with my brother or with my sister. I want to do that. And I must be true to myself. And thou shalt not condemn me from what I want. You're not allowed to condemn my behavior. And there is consent because we both want to do it. And as soon as you get to a world where genetically you can eradicate any problems with incest so that any children are not born with genetic defects, what is your objection to that? Now, at the moment, the moral consensus in this room in the West is, mm, I don't know about that, feel a bit uncomfortable about that. In 30 years' time, people will look upon you and laugh at you. What an old-fashioned view. How silly. How conservative how stuck in the 2017 they were. How enlightened we are now. Don't you think? But what's to stop that happening? Or if not incest, polygamy. That'll come first, I would imagine. Why not? Because you see, these moral fashions shift over time. They're never constant. They ebb and they flow. And unless you have a voice from outside telling the culture, don't do that, that's not good for you, that's not helping you, that's damaging yourself, you can't see. You can't see which is up and which is down. So look, Jesus, he opposes every culture at some point. Every culture throughout history has had a problem with Jesus on some issue because he's God and he says, here's truth. And no one accepts it perfectly. But trust his knowledge. He's speaking, he's not just tied to one cultural moment like you and I are. So I went on a bit there. Trust his history, trust Jesus' history, trust Jesus' knowledge, third, last. You can trust his character. Will you flick on with me to uh, chapter 22? We're back on page 1058. And there are a million places we could turn to, even just in Luke's gospel on this one. But let me just dwell upon this one little incident. I grew up in a family when uh, no one was a Christian in my family growing up. Uh, I grew up gullibly assuming that Christianity was a fairy tale. You put Jesus in the bucket with Merlin and the wizards and that's about it. I knew no different. No one taught me any different. I was just told it was tosh. So that's what I grew up believing. It was only as an adult I read Luke's gospel, actually, one of the accounts of Jesus' life. Someone said, have you ever read a gospel? Nah, why would I? Read one. All right. And I did. And, oh, oh, this is not what I thought it was. 
But I think the thing that struck me more than anything was, it's very impressive, this man, Jesus. I didn't understand everything he said. I certainly didn't understand everything that he was meant to have done. But he was impressive. He was consistent. Everything he taught, he did. He'd say, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, be a good Samaritan. And I thought, yeah, and he did all of that. But there's a sense in which what someone does when they're under pressure reveals truly what they are. And here we find Jesus under pressure in Luke 22. Uh, years ago, I uh, believe it or not, probably not, but uh, it is true that I did a short stint as, short stint as a, an army chaplain uh, and was at uh, Sandhurst, the military academy where they uh, train all the officers. And it was terrifically interesting, lots, lots of stuff, that, uh, good stories, etc. But um, one of the things that memories that stands out most was one day you had the, uh, the big lecture hall, they called uh, the... Um, doesn't matter. Uh, the biggest lecture hall uh, with the full college there, every, uh, three intakes, all in the one lecture hall, uh, being lectured by a, a general. And uh, it was a sort of vaguely interesting lecture. But near the end, he made this observation. He said, I've operated on numerous battlefields throughout the world. Let me tell you this, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. When you're on the battlefield and the flak is literally flying, bullets are going past your head... Some of you in this room will hide. Some of you in this room will run. Some of you in this room will not have the moral character to stand and lead. And I've seen that everywhere I've gone. Boom! Little, just a little nuggets or just a little bomb thrown in the room uh, for them there. Well, of course I would, of course I would. His point being, actually, until you're really under pressure, you don't know quite what a man is like or what a woman is like. Here is Jesus under pressure. Let me read a little bit. Uh, Luke 22, verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you'll not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, he's clearly under intense strain, pressure. Medically, you don't sweat blood unless you're at extremis, you know, at the limit of what you can endure. And why so? It's because he's going to take a cup. Verse 42, praise to God the Father. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. What does he mean by that? It's a cup of tea. He's not struggling to hold up a big cup, the FA cup or anything. It's very obvious if you read the Old Testament, what he was referring to is the cup of God's judgment. God describes a time when he will judge the world And judge every individual for all they've done wrong. Every selfish act, every sin, every rebellion, every wickedness, every evil thought, God would judge. And Jesus knows what he's about to do when he dies upon the cross is take upon himself every sin, 
every mistake, every evil thought, every act of rebellion, he's going to take upon himself as if an enormous funnel takes everything that's ever happened to anyone and just pours it upon Jesus. He's going to take every sin that anyone's ever committed and God's judgment upon them. And he says, oh, I don't know if I want to do it. It's quite hard to get your head around that and what he's about to do. Uh, if you ever see, um, sometimes you see parents with their small ones, under one in particular, a little baby under the age of one, and a small child has got a cold. And when a small child, a baby's got a cold, it is pretty gruesome because when they cough, their whole body sort of <clears throat> judders and shakes and you think, oh, they're not going to survive, they're not going to survive, they're so uh, limited, they're so small and so weak and so frail and this, this little cold is going to take them out. And you'll find yourself as a parent say, saying, oh, I wish I could take it for you. I wish I could take, it, take the cold and, and I'll deal with it. Because, you know, it'd just be man flu for me. It won't do any, you, you any harm. I'll just take some, some, some medicine and I can take your cold. Now, you and I could do that. We could take a cold for someone else. wouldn't be very impressive. But to take every illness, to take into yourself, for example, every, every cancer that anyone's got in the world, every typhoid, every HIV, every Ebola, so the organs collapse and bleed to death. You take on every example, every case throughout the world. This happens to you multiple times. Well, no one could do that, obviously, medically. It would be a horrific, a gruesome thing, physically. Well, that is so much more than that. Jesus is going to do that morally. He's going to take upon himself everything evil and wrong and bad that everyone has done and judgment for it. He's going to take it into himself. So when he says, Father, uh, I don't know if I want to do this, he is a man under extreme pressure. You can see the stress he was under, and yet he resolved to die. To pay for everything that you've done wrong and I've done wrong, to pay for the selfishness of people like you and people like um, and me. He was willing to do that, and he knew what he was doing. That is a man of character. And you trust people who are willing to pay a lot for you. Years ago, I was invited to a dinner in, in, uh, in honor of uh, Captain Rambahadu Limbu. It's a great name. Uh, he's, um, uh, we've got a photo of uh, Captain Limbu. He's a Nepali uh, soldier. And it was quite, quite a treat. It was when I was at Sandhurst, and uh, I was invited for a dinner in honor of him. Uh, this is him in 1956, is that right? 1958. Uh, he was obviously a bit older when I saw him for dinner. Why was he uh, there for dinner? He was one of the, he's one of the very few living recipients of the Victoria Cross. You know, it's the Victoria Cross, the highest award you can be given in uh, the British military for uh, honour and bravery in combat uh, with enemy. Why did he win it? In 19, uh, here we go, 1965. In 1965, uh, he was part of a Gurkha regiment in the British Army, defending northern Borneo when uh, it was invaded. Captain Limbu and his section encountered an enemy position. There were three machine gun posts, and they were under fire, and they were being shot. Uh, and they're, they're thinking, well, what are we going to do? We can't, we can't get up this hill. Uh, and he saw the two men either side of him get shot, and thought, well, we're all going to die. We've got a problem here. So he managed to, he picked up a grenade and threw one and good shot, took out one of the machine gun posts, the one closest to him. Then he picked up the two guns of his, uh, by all accounts, of um, 
the guys next to him and started walking up and uh, took out another machine gun post. Two comrades further, further comrades, uh, two of his buddies further up had been shot trying to get up the hill. He picked up one, carried him back under fire. Then went back, picked up the other, carried him back under fire. Then got his machine gun again and ran up the hill and took out the final machine gun post. It's a great story. I was there when uh, this story was retold. Uh, this dinner in honour of him. Because uh, 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 he lives in Nepal now, he was back in the UK, just for this dinner. The sweet thing about it was that um, the children of the men he'd saved were there at the dinner. The grandchildren of the men that he'd saved were there at the dinner. And they said it wasn't a mad act of heroism. He was always like that. It was just typical of Rambaladu Himbu. And as he's very humbly there, sort of eating his curry um, uh, in honour of him. He's a very impressive man, they said, as they took it in turns to stand up and say how much they owed him. They wouldn't be there were it not for him. A man of honour, a man of character, you can trust him. Well, it's a good story. Jesus is there in the garden and he knows what he's about to face. He knows that he's going to take upon himself absorb into himself God's judgment upon everything that's ever gone wrong in this world. He knows precisely what it's going to cost him. And he says, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll absorb this punishment so that anyone who trusts him, he doesn't need to do so in the future. That's a man of character. You can trust his character. So look, in half an hour, I don't know what it does, uh, what way of persuasion uh, I can add to you. But look, do you see that here is a man you can trust? You can trust Jesus as a true figure of history. There is no disagreement that this man walked the planet and did extraordinary things. You can trust his knowledge of humanity. He's not fixed at one cultural moment in history like you and I are. He sees the big picture. You can trust his view of humanity and how we should live. But above all, you can trust his character. That when under pressure, he didn't fail. But he went, as we've sung, he died upon a cross to pay for everything you've done wrong. So that you can have forgiveness now and an eternity with him who's risen and raised in glory. And you can trust him. You can trust the history You can trust his character because he's done that for you. Let me briefly lead us in prayer. Father, of course, I don't know where everyone in this room stands before you, but Father, would you deepen our trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you've not meant to leave us in doubt. We have enormous evidence for his life and his work. We can have certainty of his wisdom. Above all, we can trust his character. Trust that he has died, taken upon himself a horrific death, enduring your punishment so that we can live. 
Father, would you deepen our trust in him for those who've known him for years? Would you move us to greatest trust? Would you first arouse trust within us? We pray because he's so very wonderful. Amen.